on today's episode of the Conspiracy Manifesto. Yeah, I'm going to need some backup. These aren't politicians. These are corrupt officials running Iraq. These are totally corrupt people. Hello, hello, my planetary people. Welcome to the show. If you're a new listener, if you're a continued listener, thank you so much for continuing to listen to my show. It means a lot that people want to hear my opinion on conspiracies because there's so many out there, so many podcasts, so many conspiracies to cover, and I'm so excited to dig into some of the craziest topics with you all. You're welcome to leave any inquiries on topics you'd like to hear on the website, which is theconspiracymanifesto.com. So today is no different. Today's topic is going to be on pharmaceutical propaganda, which is a topic that has affected my own life very deeply. And it was probably my first conspiracy that I ever really fell into the rabbit hole with. But it's one of those topics that you really have to tread carefully on because doctors are out there risking their lives every day to save lives. And so many people's survival is in the hands of medicines that have been created because of modern medicine. And most of us probably wouldn't survive in the modern world at all without the incredible technologies and advances that alternative medicine just wouldn't be able to tackle on its own. So I really had to remove my bias on this one from my own bad experiences, although they are applicable and I will mention them later once I get to my own musings. So just an FYI, I won't be discussing COVID-19 in this podcast today. There's plenty of podcasts out there and frankly, it's just too controversial and is not needed in order to highlight the importance of this topic. So I'm just leaving it out of this one. So what is big pharma, the conspiracy. It's the idea that the global pharmaceutical and medical companies operate completely in a state of profits and not one of true healing. And even to go as far as to hypothesize that medications and approaches to treatments are causing worse health conditions and disease in the world which really isn't a secret when you hear those commercials for pharmaceuticals and all their side effects. The other part of the conspiracy is how or why alternative medicine is not only excluded, but for the most part, it's completely rejected from the mainstream medical community. Practices like herbal medicine, acupuncture, yoga, massage, energy work, sound healing, meditation, Even psychedelic medicines and cannabis are one of the many casualties of big pharma, and it's created a lot of suspicion for most people of why this healing is not being researched and being sold as completely ineffective, which is just not true. There's a lot of energy being spent on prescribing drugs, but no energy into the education on how to maintain proper mental and physical health. And instead of preventing disease, they treat things after the fact with the harshest option possible, like an antibiotic for a little cold, when antibiotics kill good and bad bacteria in the gut. They can cause poor digestion for months or even years with repetitive use, which is never mentioned at the doctor, by the way. 
but they just pop them out like stickers. Same with pain meds. Hence the massive opioid crisis. And there's just so much under the surface with big pharma that's left such such a bad taste in my mouth, but I can only get so far under the surface. That's how it feels with all these topics. It's like I have these huge topics I want to tackle, but it takes me weeks of research. I mean, I have 12 pages here of research, and I feel like I barely scratched the surface of where our medical system is currently failing us. So I'm going to get into some specific examples of how this is happening. And I know in some countries in Europe, healthcare is not expensive and, or at least, you know, you don't have to pay for it separately outside of your, you know, what's benefited from the government. Um, but they potentially don't have the same monopoly on inflation of medical supplies and medicines in Europe and other countries as they do in the U.S. The U.S. is probably one of the worst in terms of the monopolies. There's 6,000 total hospitals in the U.S., and they have about $1 trillion in expenses every single year. But the cost of what you're paying for at the hospital is never transparent. They never tell you how much you're going to pay when you're there. It's literally laid upon you, even if you're dying on the table, you know, you have no opportunity to pick and choose what treatments you'd be able to afford. You take what they do and often they don't tell you as they're doing it, you know, especially if you're dying and they're going to do whatever it takes to save your life, but you will get the bill later. And I mean, I've gotten medical bills that are astronomical, thousands of dollars from the emergency room or even just regular medical visits where I had labs done. It's ridiculous. And if you're not paying those high medical bills, you're paying ridiculously high insurance bills. 40 million people in the United States do not have health insurance due to the cost. So Big Pharma is currently the biggest lobbyist in the United States. So a lobbyist is a professional advocate that works to influence political decisions on behalf of organizations. And they're the ones that donate to campaigns to help people get elected. Like how Bernie Sanders said he was the first politician to run for president without accepting any lobbyist donations. Which, during my research, I actually found some pharmaceutical donations to Bernie Sanders during the campaign. Which wasn't nearly a fraction of what Hillary Clinton received. She is the presidential candidate received that received the most donations from Big Pharma in U.S. history. But I did find it interesting that Bernie Sanders' campaign is based on not taking any donations, but I did find some that he did receive just from Big Pharma alone. So, frankly, I can't trust anybody in office, regardless of party, because they're all puppets for the holders of wealth. In 2019, the pharmaceutical industry spent over $300 million lobbying, which is twice as much as big oil spends. But that's just pharmaceuticals. You still have the medical institutions and bioengineering that combine billions of lobbying power. And it's the greatest United States power currently. Due to the monopoly in the United States from the lobbying, the pharmaceutical companies can charge whatever they want on medications, which we have seen in the last couple of years with insulin. I mean, people are dying because they can't afford insulin. It's just terrible. So where does this all come from? 
who owns the medical institutions, at least within the United States. And some of this stretches globally as well. So in 1910, 20 men came together in something called the Hopkins Circle. And in these meetings, they created an edifice that was, much of it was based on the infamous Flexner Report, which researched the world's medical systems and suggested ways to streamline it and create the systematic approach to medicine. So this Hopkins Circle consisted of John D. Rockefeller, Frederick Gates, both of which were families I mentioned in the New World Order episode for owning the world's wealth, other notable members, William Osler, William Welch, and this project was completely funded by the Rockefeller and Carnegie Institute. Through the significant amount of funding from Rockefeller and Carnegie, the Hopkins Circle findings and the Flexner Report were embraced into the American medical education model, which was eventually enacted into laws. The American medical schools would be reviewed and rated using this data, as it is now. That Flexner Report is actually used to test how effective or streamlined a hospital or institution a medical institution is. So anybody that opposed this system was quickly silenced. The concern by many at that time was that this full streamlined system would remove all ethos from medicine in the blind passion for scientific research. The few medical schools at that time that were also owned by Rockefeller and Carnegie and Hopkins, they set American medicine on the course that it is now from the early 1900s. And since then, many of the world's medical systems have shortly followed in order to keep up and be competitive with American scientific research, to which many of the discoveries that have come in in the last 120 years, they're immeasurable. To say that the American medical system have done, has done nothing but bad things is frankly incorrect. But the deficits of their care is becoming more and more obvious in the face of health conditions as they sit now. None of the top death causes that are the top death causes were the same back in the 1800s. And it's just not from, it's not completely from a lack of comprehensive medical care. There's many other factors that contribute to it. And I think a lot of them could and should be blamed on the FDA, which I'll discuss later in the episode. So this one-size-all streamlined medical system that was enacted in the early 1900s is exactly what is used now that's contributed to the overprescription of medicines. It's a one-size-fits-all method to prescribing. Doctors are taught how to treat symptoms, like if you come in with a headache or pain in the left arm, which could be from a million different sources. But it's easier to give an anti-inflammatory or a pain reliever than to actually address the actual root of the cause of pain, which could even be emotional or untreatable through medicines. But a doctor would never discuss mental or emotional trauma in an appointment. Like if a veteran comes in with PTSD, they will give them SSRIs, which are antidepressants. Or if you, if you say you're having suicidal thoughts, they'll just hospitalize you and numb you with medications. Granted, you can get a therapist 
that will work directly with a psychiatrist, but the only thing that they'll work together to help you get is meds. It's pharmaceuticals. There's no direct treatment to addressing our mental and physical health with tools that are beyond pharmaceuticals. And that has nothing against pharmaceuticals. It's just to suggest that there are other treatments that aren't being researched because it's not as easy or streamlined or profitable. As modern medicine sits right now, as extravagant and amazing as it is, it's incomplete. And of the nearly $30 billion that health companies spend on medical marketing each year, around 68%, which is $20 billion, goes to persuading doctors and other medical professionals, not consumers, of the benefits of prescription drugs. So if you've ever heard of a pharmaceutical rep, or maybe you are one, or maybe you've seen one come into your doctor's office, their only intention of being there is to persuade with gifts and sometimes donations, you know, a nice lunch, whatever that they can contribute to persuade doctors to prescribe these medicines. And doctors get massive benefits for signing on with these pharmaceutical reps and prescribing these prescriptions to their patients. Some even get proportional dividends from that. Like if they prescribe more, they get more money. So they're completely incentivized and commissioned to push these certain medications. It's a mass prescribing problem. And this is something that's seen more prevalent now within children. If they can't fit within the confines of the primary school box, you know, they're just stuffed with medicines. In my own experience, from a very young age, I was diagnosed with ADD and I was put on an amphetamine at the age of 11, which is just crazy to me thinking back. By the age of 14, I had insomnia because I was on amphetamines before my brain was even developed. So they had me on trazodone, which is a very intense sleeping medication, which I eventually developed a tolerance to. And then my insomnia came back and it led to pretty profound anxiety, which they eventually put me on an antidepressant for. And eventually I developed some of the worst suicidal thoughts I've ever experienced in my life at that period and was ultimately hospitalized for suicide and depression. And I really do attribute this back to my amphetamine usage at that young of an age. It just, with that on top of, you know, being told by society that I wasn't enough, I couldn't fit into this box because I was too creative, because I was drawing in class, even though I had already finished my work. I was finishing things too quickly and talking too much. And it's just like, they just hammer you down into this box. And if you don't fit in the box, they're going to numb you. And I don't know if this is what it's like in other countries, but this is my own experience in the United States. And it led to a lot of undoing and unlearning of healing that I had to go through in order to feel complete, feel worthy of, you know, life, which should be taught frankly, 
but that was not my own experience. So the death tolls and statistics, wow, statistics. So internationally, opioids, oh my God, I can't even talk today, guys. So opioids every year, 160,000 people die of drug overdose every year. And on average, 70% of those are from opioids. 800,000 people kill themselves on average every year because mental health isn't effectively addressed and a part of our education, not only in public school systems, but within our medical institutions as well. They do not highlight or emphasize the importance of mental health, nor do they help us develop the tools to deal with it without medications. And obviously, suicide is getting progressively worse over the years, but it's not new enough for them not to have the research or the solutions. And it's clear that that's not the main point in research. And I don't want to get too heavy into my own experiences, but I did go to school for biology in my undergrad, and I was doing medical research. It was conservation research, but I had requested at that point to test things in my lab for anti-cancer and other medical benefits. And I was told, you know, you would be losing your grant. You don't have that authority to be researching these subjects. So, you know, the opportunity for innovation and research is not there. They would rather continue to change the existing pharmaceuticals. For example, just, you know, bacteria has an evolution. So as that bacteria evolves and develops a tolerance to these pharmaceuticals, they're changing the existing pharmaceuticals to change with the evolution of bacteria, which is just creating stronger and stronger bacteria for those certain diseases. But it's because it takes millions of dollars and years of research to develop a patent for a drug or, you know, a treatment. So instead, these medical institutions do not highlight innovation. They are highlighting the research that continues to use, you know, penicillin, for example. They're, they've just changed the component structure of penicillin over and over in order to adapt to us instead of creating new drugs or research into alternative medicines. And this is one of the many deficits of the American and international health systems. The largest cause of death in the world currently is cardiovascular disease. 17 million people die every year, and 1 million of those are in the U.S. And this also highlights how the world at large is suffering from a lack in nutritional knowledge. Or what we are being taught, like from the FDA and from our medical institutions on what health should look like, what diets should look like, is frankly incorrect, and that's why we can't meet these health standards. So the FDA has been running the game on nutritional knowledge since about the same time as I had mentioned the Hopkins Circle had created that edifice for um, streamlined medicine. So in 1906, there was the enactment of the Federal Drug Act by FDR, another Illuminati member, hint, hint. So this Federal Drug Act 
was created by a group of scientists within the Department of Agriculture who wanted to regulate the production of domestic foods. And it did bring a lot of great things with the reduction of some harmful chemicals in our foods and drugs and the laws that standardized food labeling as it is today, which was huge. But as currently seen by the opioid crisis, the FDA is hella selective on removing poisons from the public. I put a list on the website of just over 1,000 food additives and chemicals that are banned in Europe but are not in the U.S. Most of the world has even outlawed corn syrup, which is the main ingredient in 70% of the grocery stores today in the U.S. And people are just so freaking obsessed with the FDA. It drives me nuts. And I know I said I wouldn't mention the vaccine or at least COVID-19, which I won't. But the main argument against the vaccine right now is that the FDA hasn't approved it. And it just makes me laugh because the FDA is a business. It's following a list of steps one through 10. The actual efficacy and ethics regarding the vaccine are not the FDA's concerns. There are many drugs and vaccines that have tested as no significant difference between the control, control group and the drug group such as the flu vaccine, but they are still widely administered. But just because the FDA approves it doesn't mean jack shit. And just because one vaccine is not effective doesn't mean they all aren't. So it's just a very complex issue. There's no generalized yes or no belief in my opinion. And, you know, do your own research about vaccines, but... Don't make a general opinion based on the public. That's all I have to say. So the FDA won't regulate herbs. This is another huge reason why herbal medicine can't be practiced within this institution of medicine. Plants as medicine in the eyes of the government are classified as dietary supplements, which also include vitamins, enzymes, minerals, and other supplements, including diet pills. Because of this classification, it doesn't take as many years and millions of dollars of research to put that herb on the shelf, but it also allows for the manufacturers of herb companies to not have to meet the same strict requirements that is required by the FDA. So they're also extremely limited on the claims that they can make about the capabilities of the medicinal properties of these plants, but there's just a ton of issues. I'm very picky about where I get my herbs. I won't buy herbs in capsules, especially at places like Target or Walmart or the average grocery store, say if they're selling calendula in capsules, you know, they only have to test that there's calendula in the capsules. There could be miscellaneous other plant matter that's taking up some of that space and may not be testing as high as they it's similar to cannabis they only have to test one nug out of all these ounces and there's a variance of what that actual testing is from nug to nug depending on the growth patterns the type of plant i mean there's just so many components and variables that can't be considered in this streamlined perspective of medicine. So herbs are denied from 
the mainstream medical institutions. You cannot prescribe plants to help somebody, which is unfortunate and frankly crazy because most of the medicines are derived from plants, such as acetaminophen, which comes from the bark of willow tree. And willow tree is known, you know, in ancient medicine to be treated, to be used to treat the same things for anti-inflammatory properties, such as headaches and pain, but you can't prescribe willow bark. You have to prescribe the medicine, which has many other ingredients that may not be as satisfactory to the person, depending on what they're using that for. Because not, like I said earlier, not every headache or pain spot is a one size fits all. There, you know, your headache could come from dehydration. It could come from stress. There's a multitude of issues that these could come from. So now we've got to my own thoughts and theories on the subject. While I do believe and admire that the foundation of modern medicine is incredible and we could not live without it, they are missing that individual approach to treating people. They're just running things like a business that's now fueled by the masses remaining sick because if people weren't as sick as they were, they wouldn't be making those billions and trillions of dollars a year that they are. I don't necessarily believe that every doctor and every pharmaceutical lobbyist is out there plotting that people are going to get sick and kill themselves. I think they are all just casualties and proponents of this institution that's running like a business. And as somebody who has ran businesses, I totally understand and respect that streamlining and organizational process. But healing, true healing, is something so much deeper than what a business process could ever achieve. I think body trauma is just as complex as mental trauma, and they're often interconnected on many more levels than we give them credit for. If anything, I think some level of healing can be achieved and must be achieved on a spiritual level. And if you're not spiritual, that's fine. You could think of it in terms of dreaming, how we use the dream world to understand our waking world, to see what is hidden from our consciousness in order to improve it, or the idea that information that goes into the subconscious and unconscious mind will eventually manifest into your conscious personality and external reality. I am a believer in manifestation and what we think we become. And I've seen this firsthand in my own body. When I believed back then that I was ugly and unworthy, I had the worst cystic acne you could imagine. And when I was put into that box at school where I was told I couldn't be hyperactive, I had the worst ADD at that point in my life. But now that I'm a free-spirited creative... I don't find myself struggling to focus outside of the quote-unquote normal parameters. And unfortunately, many of these parameters are defined within the perspective of capitalism. Many of our health conditions, especially mental ones, stem from the constraints put on us by the 40-hour work week and the massive, of, massive amount of bills that we have to keep up with but the more that we disconnect from these societal expectations, from our screens, from our egos, 
and our negative perceptions of ourselves and of the world, we naturally heal. And I'm here to tell you firsthand, I was a walking bag of medications growing up. I had a massive amount of health conditions on paper. And through my entrance into spirituality, through herbal medicine, yoga, a conscious and local diet, meditation, daily journaling, it's changed my life forever. I mean, granted, I do struggle with mental struggles from time to time, but it it didn't require me to exhaust numbing medications in order to get here. But that's only my story. It can't and won't apply to every single listener here. But that's just the point. Healing is not a one-size-fits-all solution. Every individual needs a custom treatment plan. I also believe that education on a massive level needs to be vamped up on not only mental health and the tools to deal with our mind, but the tools to deal with our diet and our nutrition in order to prevent those diseases from ever happening. Being in touch with our local food systems is so important. Where the food we're eating comes from and what's really in it. Don't trust the FDA. (laughs) Nutritional research can be heavy and it's a life's work of understanding what's right for your own body. So I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but especially time-wise, it's going to involve a lot of cooking, which is still difficult for even me to manage time-wise in the day. But knowing that your produce is local, organic, and that your meal can be as free of pesticides and additives as much as possible, and I do believe in energy, and that energy that goes into eating locally is stronger, eating off of our own land that we live on versus getting our food shipped in from who knows where. And this also reduces the carbon footprint because food being shipped all over the world uses a massive amount of fossil fuels. So the less that you could shop at your, you know, kind of local Kroger or whatever type grocery store that's the main grocery store, and the more that you can shop at farmer's markets you know, local type produce markets, or even your health stores, the more that you could shop there, I know that they could be more expensive. I'm a couponer myself. So there's ways to get access to that food. Granted, we are not taught how to do it. But unfortunately, we have to teach ourselves in this situation. Because preventative medicine is key. Targeting, treating health conditions before they ever happen. Like instead of taking vitamin C when you get sick, take it every other day and be conscious of your weekly diet so that you can try to capture the necessary vitamins and minerals that your body needs. And digestion is one of the most important parts of our health that nobody talks about. Like I had mentioned earlier about antibiotics killing bad and good bacteria in the gut, there's over 8 billion neurons in our gut, which is eight times more than in the brain. So most of our bodily functions, our hormones, our cells rely on this biome, the flora of the gut to be healthy and thriving. And so when you're killing that bacteria, you have nothing to absorb your nutrients with. So you could have the best diet all day, but if you have nothing to absorb those nutrients, it doesn't mean shit. So it's so important that not only are you eating well, but you're protecting that ecosystem in the body, that biome in the gut through positive bacteria, probiotics, etc. And 
just increasing that digestive and absorbic ability so that you can get the most out of your diet and it allows you to eat less. So our food is our medicine. And that's the most important thing I could possibly get across in this entire podcast. It's controversial, but our emotional pain can often create diseases themselves. So that's something to look into if you're having chronic physical pain and no, you know, modern medicine is helping, consider looking into what emotions in ancient traditions are linked to that health condition and to work on, you know, an overall comprehensive outlook on your health from mental to physical to that spiritual health and that has nothing to do with religion it's just that idea of observing your consciousness what it focuses on if if you focus on how you don't have any money and you're ugly and you're sick all the time that will continue you're telling your brain how to how to function it's like you know, treat your body like a robot. What data are you feeding yourself? Because that goes a long way. And not just for living a long time, but, you know, thriving in the short term, not just the long term, because it does have a significant effect on the whole body at large in your daily operations. So I hope that was helpful. Thank you so much for listening, you guys. If you have any comments, I would love to hear from you guys. Go to the discussions on Instagram, Reddit, or Discord in order to contribute to the conversation. And we aren't taking any corporate sponsorships, so any donations that you guys would want to help to the podcast, there's links in the link tree and on the website for PayPal or Stripe. And I just want to say that all donations contribute to studio space, equipment, sound quality, editing software, and to reduce the need for ever having corporate sponsorships or ads. All this plus the ability for me to make more podcasts for your listening pleasure. And once again, I thank you for being here. And I will see you next week for more Conspiracy.